We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people to make it and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. Our, our very good friend Michael Moynihan isn't around. Uh, but Matt Welch is, in fact, here, editor at large of Reason Magazine, I believe is still his title. Um, and this is, this is a special installment of the podcast because it is always special when our friend Greg Lukianoff, the CEO of Fire, Hi. is on the podcast welcome back greg thanks for having me this is maybe your third tour here but this is exceptionally special because he has brought his very bright thoughtful erudite um and young just too a little bit too young young underscore young uh co-author ricky schlott who is a columnist the new york post and his co-author his new co-author for his new book the canceling of the american mind we're going to talk about that new book um, and talk about various other things that are happening in the news cycle, which I think pertain <laughs> really pretty closely to what's happening. In the book. This is still a going concern. Um, Greg, I'm delighted you're here. Ricky. I'm glad you're finally here on the podcast. We've been fr- all, all of us, are friends, I'm a big fan of both of yours and I'm delighted you could make some time to join us on a Friday evening at 9 PM. Mm-hmm. So that's I a just want to serious. Uh, I want to, uh, Perhaps uh, uh, throw down the possibility here that Ricky Schlott might be our youngest ever guest. Is that true? Oh, wow. Well, Coleman Hughes, when he first came on, might have been hmm. like 14 years old. It's unclear. This is true. But like, <laughs> uh, it's definitely a Coleman versus Ricky. The Coleman, who was on yeah. uh, Joe Rogan this week, by the way. Mm, so, oh, well, I didn't even know that. Is that true? Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing you should know, man. I, I, I shouldn't, dude. That. It's been such a week. I can't even you tell helped you. helped birth coleman into the world and now he's like <laughs> he's like the only guest who ever talks about israel on joe rogan um ironically or something. Um, but yeah he was on there this week uh so yes um, ricky you're uh you're uh you're competing for the precociousist yeah. well, i'm, pre- I'm pretty uh, sure she's won that that title because anyone else who's been on who's younger would have probably been at an event like uh the fire conference that moina and i oh attended right yeah that you could not make it to matt welch it was pretty cool that is true that is yeah. true i, ha- I, have, I have bill mars yeah. i'm officially bill mars youngest guest which is something that i a badge i wear with honor so oh my god yeah. really oh okay so you're just going to mm-hmm. run the table yeah, just get him all so in there like, now. That was like that's a what you t- do. like a uh, was before the strike, right? It was just before the strike. Yeah, that was a that was a year ago now. So I, I just turned twenty two oh, really? already. Just right. very daunting. Okay, but yeah. How was the uh, how was the nerves before? Like, just I mean, I know you've done some media, <laughs> but like going on Bill Maher before the age of twenty two yeah. is a little bit rough. Or that was. Yeah, that was interesting. I think it was like I had such bad imposter syndrome that my brain was just like, well, apparently we're just going to plow right through this and be totally fine. So I don't know. I, it ended up being a lot better than I expected it would be. Um, and Piers Morgan is my co-panelist. But of course, it was like the week that Mar-a-Lago, the Mar-a-Lago raid happened. And like it was just the craziest news cycle ever. But I still have my um, my my <laughs> memorabilia from that night. He had this whole suitcase full of fake props of things that they had gotten from mar-a-lago and by the way greg you breathe so loud oh what <laughs> uh, that's just great Sorry, I, 
the so he comes out with this <laughs> this suitcase full of things that they had supposedly raided from Mar-a-Lago, and then at the end of the um, night, we he dispersed the the um, the goodies from it, and I still have the. This is really inappropriate, but I it was in yep. my bedside. Uh-oh. The Trump penis pump is still. <laughs> <laughs> She was handing them out, and he went like bright red, and I'm like, "Well, absolutely, I'm taking that one." It's just so, <laughs> that's my souvenir. <laughs> oh my god! Well, that's got to work. I mean, obviously, yeah. that works. That is a totally legitimate product, and it's not like the Trump steaks or anything else. That's I mean, right. that's just that's premium. It's also material. necessary. Grade A plastic made in America. Very necessary. Yeah. Well, not for me. I don't need that. I'm I don't even know how that works. I don't understand. Rum. That was oh, the oh, yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I'm not being I'm not being unnecessarily defensive about anything. Uh, maybe we should talk yeah, about uh, free that. speech. <laughs> um, well, look, I, I want to start with both of you in general, but Ricky, if you'll allow me, I have to ask Greg this because he he has written another book about a similar topic, and I thought that you if had fixed this thing, what happened? Why did we need another book? You you wrote Coddling. It was phenomenal. It was a success. And we we fixed all of the problems. Why did we need another we book? We didn't actually fix all the problems. Um, and, and even though the book <laughs> sold really well and people read it and claimed to understand it, nobody actually seemed to get that our central message was, hi, can we please stop teaching young people the mental habits of anxious and depressed people? And they're like, oh, my God, there's a mental health crisis. We should totally t- teach them to catastrophize. It, it's like everything we, we said in the book, they did the exact opposite, even sometimes citing the book in order to do the exact opposite of wow. what we would have recommended. And meanwhile, you know, coddling was, uh, you know, had a lot about free speech, but it was also largely about mental health and what was so different about Gen Z. This book, um, and, and we could say in the, in the title of Coddling the American Mind, you know, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Um, right at the same time, we noticed all these trends on campus um, getting so much worse because I've been defending free speech on campus for a good 22 years now. Um, we also noticed cancel culture, you know, uh, rearing its ugly head, like something very unsubtle change around 2014 for those of us who, who were watching this on the front lines. It just suddenly just a lot more people were losing their jobs for opinions, and there were a lot more campaigns to get people fired than I remember at any previous time in my career. And it just got worse. You know, there'd be some years, like, I, I think uh, 2017 wasn't quite as crazy, but then 2020, but then 2017 was actually also the time that you have a huge escalation. And we have lots of data um, in the book of, uh, of students targeting professors to get them canceled. By the way, Students working with administrators in many cases, and oftentimes encouraged by administrators. That's the part that a lot of people miss. Um, and by the time uh, I started working with Ricky, could, because she became a fire fellow shortly after we met. Um, oh, actually, the funny thing is, we actually didn't meet in person until after we had signed the contract for the book. We'd known each other for probably like a year, a year and a half. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I finally met her like in person at the Comedy Cellar event that we did. And I was like, oh, my God, you're a kid. <laughs> because I, I knew intellectually how old she was but you know like oh like who, so someone's daughter got here you know i was like oh my god this this, this is my co-author anyway <laughs> not just someone's daughter sheriff don't so anyway I'll, we were originally thinking about writing something that was a direct follow-up to coddling the american mind um 
Height says he's Gen X. I kind of think he's a boomer, but that's that's okay. I'm I'm Gen X, but we're two Gen X dudes who wrote a book that was largely about you know the mental health crisis, largely disproportionately hitting Gen X young women, a uh, Gen Z young women, and so the opportunity to write a follow up that actually has a perspective of a brilliant Gen Z young woman, you know, seemed great. But as we were kind of thinking it through. I was still dealing with people saying cancel culture isn't even real. And I'm kind of like, dude, I've been watching this on campus. It's not just real. It's like the worst attack on academic freedom there has been since the law was established in 1957 from 1973. Like, it's not close. It's not subtle. There's, And we felt like we just had to, you know, um, put it all in one place once and for all to be kind of like, no, that crazy thing that everybody else knows happened really did happen. No, Ricky, I, I I can understand why Greg doesn't understand what's really going on out there because he's just an old white man and we can disregard his perspective. But you are a, a young person who was on a college campus. You certainly know that it's not cancel culture. It is consequence culture. And all that, that people are trying to do is give a voice to minorities and women and various other groups who have been beleaguered and taken advantage of. And Greg is complaining about nothing. Everyone knows that I'm acting here. But it would be great if you could give a little bit of context for how you came to this project um, and and why you thought this was something that was important to devote your time and attention to. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually I read Coddling when I was, I think, between my my senior year of high school and freshman year of college and brought it to NYU with me and very much had the experience of like, I, these were Greg and John were talking about all these symptoms that I recognized in all my peers and some of which I recognized in myself. And it was like having someone come in and diagnose it in a way that I couldn't from the inside, like living in the, the lens of cognitive distortions that they were pointing out on campus. Um, and so I, when I reached out to Greg, actually, for the first time, it was for a New York post op-ed uh, that I was writing about how perhaps the pandemic could uncoddle Gen Z, which definitely did not happen, <laughs> at least yet. But, um, but it made this partnership all come yeah. to fruition, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. And, um, you know, I've just been super animated on the, the free speech front ever since um, I was uh, actually taking a leave of absence during the pandemic from NYU. And I read John Stuart Mill for the first time. And I had this like very, which, which like, book? It, it hit me like a ton of bricks uh, on Liberty. And it was just like a, a moment for me when I realized like, oh my gosh, there's, there are these principles that underpin free speech and like free speech. Were kind, it was just kind of a vacuous term to me that didn't really matter. Uh, to be honest, um, growing up, I was not taught despite having gone to a, to great schools and having done two years of a philosophy degree, I was not really taught the principles of classical liberalism and free speech. And as soon as it, it was like, you know, like riding a bike and you can't unlearn that sort of uh, concept. And it became right. super obvious and evident to me that there are so many young people in my generation who just don't understand the the profoundness of the inheritance that we have as, as people who live in a, a free country with free expression rights. And so ever since then, I've just been super gung-ho to to open people's eyes and also to fight back against cancel culture, which I think, especially as a young person who grew up in the age of cancel culture, it's a really, really important issue to me because Gen Z actually has the most negative view of cancel culture of any generation, which I think surprises most people. Greg, I saw you write, uh, and it's I'm going to try as hard as I can to resist the temptation to just jump in the line with a bunch of this week in the news yeah, questions. Don't do that oh my yet. God, yeah. But also, like... <laughs> <laughs> Your stuff, this book came out in a pretty kind of interesting week, but uh, you were mentioning about the 2014 
um, spike, yeah. which you've talked about before on this on this uh, on this program. Um, uh, one of the things that you wrote about, of uh, many things that you wrote about in the past week, um, shocked me uh, because you're sort of talking about um, the post nine eleven cancellations or legal cases having to do with people um, who uh, academics who said crazy shit uh, yeah. after 9-11. Everyone remembers kind of Ward Churchill from whatever assistant Boulder State well, uh, that he was at. Um, and you used a number there. Uh, I think it was in the New York Post I, essay uh, a few days ago of like the number of kind of cancellations uh, post 9-11 that got to a level of at least uh, of certain litigation uh, was three. And um. I was shocked by that number because I would have just assumed that it was 30 or 300 yep. um, without totally getting into the news of this past week. Um, can you like walk me through understanding that through the lens of 2014, which is to say, did we just have this insane multiplier yeah. in 2014 so that every category increased, increased by several hundred times or something? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, like 9-11, of course, like is very vivid to me because I, I landed to find my apartment in Philadelphia at 9, 10 a.m. on 9-11. Um, wow. and, Jesus. And so, like, I, I got stuck in Philly for a whole week, um, uh, and I, I started work. It was it, first going there to, to find my apartment and then came back three weeks. And, of course, all of my first cases were people who said insensitive things about 9-11. Some of them, by the way, were saying, get those terrorists, <laughs> you know. Um, some of them were saying, anyone who can blow up at the Pentagon has my vote. Or death to Israel, or um, or, that, or or yeah, calling the victims of the World Trade Center little Eichmanns, um, like uh, uh, like Ward Churchill did. So not highly sympathetic stuff. Um, but when you look at kind of like the the history of freedom of speech on campus since the law was established, and I always make the point that when people point back to the Red Scare, and even though there are more people fired due to cancel culture that actually were in the Red Scare, but we can come back to that. Um, that was all before the law was even established. The, that, that was uh, 1957 was a case called Sweezy v. New Hampshire. That was the first time it said that academic freedom is protected by the First Amendment and you can't fire a communist professor. Um, and that that those series of cases were done by 1973. There's nothing even vaguely close to what we've seen since 2014. And here's what makes it even weirder. Generally, when you have a mass censorship event in history, it's due to a major war or a major national security crisis. Um, and, I, and I'm working on a series kind of comparing all of these things. Well, actually, originally a chapter in the book, but it ended up being our most boring chapter in the book. So I'm, I'm uh, But I love this stuff, so I'm going to be <laughs> sub-stacking sub it. Um, Bore you with the sub-stack. <laughs> so when I, when I started FIRE, we felt like we were being overwhelmed by the sudden flood of cases of people getting in trouble for what they said at 9-11. And it really didn't feel that way. And it works out that there are about... 15, 17 uh, cases of professors being targeted. And even those three professors that got fired, pretty much all of them were actually justified under one was saying, you, you know, you took a huge part of your class to talk about something not related to the class. And it's like, okay, that's a little, a little closer. The other one was Samuel Arian, like, oh, actually, we shouldn't have gone off here for your speech because it turns out you do have connections to, you know, foreign terrorism. It's like, okay, well, I can for that. He was indicted uh, for, for those connections. Um, and then, of course, Ward Churchill, who fired, was successfully got the school to be like, oh, no, actually, yeah, we, we defend his free speech rights to be offensive. But what about this massive history of academic misconduct, which was really serious, by the <laughs> way? 
Um, and so even of those three, you know, we thought this was bad. And, and it's the normal situation where um, uh, there's a big national security crisis and, and everybody freaks out. Um, and it was still, you know, I, there was one professor called Richard Bertold, the guy who said anyone to go blow up the Pentagon and have my boat, who I think deserves I to be saying. counted because he really was forced out. But that's about, you know, that's it. And that was considered bad. And this actually increased appreciation for academic freedom on campus for years after that, because suddenly um, this and, and this is one of the reasons why it's so uh, typical to me, like um, what's happening on campus right now. Every time campuses think that there's a threat coming from off campus, they suddenly discover the holiness of freedom of speech and the sacredness of academic freedom. And even this week, they decided, oh, and, and political neutrality. Well, you know, they, we have this new idea. It's like it's actually been around since 1967 <laughs> and we've been uh, 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 you know, p- pushing for it. Um, and they're acting like it's something new. They, you know, kind of like, oh, we have academic freedom and free speech here. But the reason why I, I'm cynical about this is, one, they've discovered political neutrality because they're not exactly thrilled with what a lot of their students were saying that was pro Hamas. Um, and t- two, it's because it's not coming from on campus. As soon as actually there's pressure to get people canceled coming from on campus, my guess is, you know, Harvard, I hope not Stanford, but uh, but a lot of these schools that are saying talking a good game on free speech all of a sudden, I have every reason to think they're just going to go back to being as bad as they were. I mean, and by the way, we haven't, we've seen a handful of, of cases in which the, um, there's anything like, we're looking into a couple of cases where it looks like there might be like one or two incidents of, of there being charges against students, but we're not even sure that's really the case. Whereas like, let's say after like George Floyd in 2020, we've never seen that many cases submitted to fire in our entire lives. Like, and it was people wow. going after professors for things they tweeted a long time ago. It was people demanding that people have their, um, uh, they have their um, um, admission rescinded because of a video, for example, that, that someone kept of them from uh, uh, from high school saying the N word. Um, you know, it, it was a it was an utterly insane period, and it's really I think everyone should be set, uh, cynical and somewhat skeptical that campuses now that they're actually on the receiving end have suddenly discovered freedom of speech because that's what they always say when they think the threat's coming from outside. I'm curious about, you have to be the <laughs> spokesman of the generation, and sorry for that. And you're also like <laughs> seven years older than my 15-year-old uh, daughter. Um, and so I want you to preview the horrors that I have in front of me. Um, is there a moment that happens with you, you know, born online people? Uh, where there is like, oh shit! <laughs> I did this on TikTok when I was thirteen, or I did this on Facebook when I was fifteen. Um, um, describe for us, you know, Gen Xers, basically boomers, but uh, totally Gen <clears throat> Xers. Um, like, it, is there an aha moment where you wake up and realize that this can bite you in the ass, and that people are going to use it? opportunistically against you in case you cross them in some way. What is sort of the relationship with living in public and having this public record uh, accessible mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I'm really like on the the cutting edge of that because I was, I think the, the iPhone or the, I, I want to say the iPhone came out around like 2010 and I was 10 when I got my first iPhone, which for me was in 2010, right around when, when it first came out. I'm, quite literally the first year of, of people to have grown up with a smartphone at that 
young of an age. I was on Instagram by the time I was 11. Um, and I can tell you that if there's any Gen Zer who says that there's not something stupid or bad or regrettable that's floating around on them, they're lying to you. A hundred percent there is. Um, I think, I, I mean, being at the oldest end of that cohort, I've certainly realized that. And I think especially when you look around and you see young people have things from years past creep back up on them, it makes you more, more uh, cognizant of that fact. I don't think we've fully understood the extent quite yet, but I, I've I've been saying for a while, and I think this is true, that as soon as we get to a point where all the major incoming leaders of, of institutions and, and all the major public figures have had s- smartphones and smartphone cameras pointed at them since basically birth, we're going to have to have a ceasefire at a certain point because this is not a sustainable situation. It it can come for for everyone. I think we will come around to realize that at some point in time, but I don't think it's happening quite fast enough to be totally honest. I want to talk about, and I do want to talk about some of the stuff that's going on uh, in the Middle East and how that intersects with the themes of the book. But before we get there, Ricky, a a moment ago, you said that Gen Z was, was the most skeptical of free speech. Um, I'm curious about yeah. of cancel culture. That's no, right. Actually, of cancel, cancel culture, culture in general not as, a, as a concept. But yeah. I'm curious about that um, and why you think that is. But I'm also broadly curious about the way that there seems to be a growing skepticism about the fit, the, the fitness or appropriateness or the efficacy. Efficacy is the right word. I'm going through the whole thing. It's like, yeah, efficacy. The efficacy of free Smart. speech and beliefs beliefs about the efficacy of free speech on the left and the right, which mm-hmm. I think there is a growing skepticism about free speech. I think it has happened for different reasons, but I'd love for you all to just paint a picture of the landscape yeah. um, in terms of what the challenges are and, and why they're manifesting in the way that they are. Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's, there's two parts there. Firstly, I, I know based on, on survey data that Gen Z actually has the most negative view of cancel culture. There was a, a large morning consult survey that, I went from boomers down to Gen Z. And the pattern, if you exclude Gen Z, is very clear. And what I would expect that older generations are more negative on cancel culture. And the younger you get, the millennials are super gung-ho. They're the the most positive Mm. on on cancel culture, apparently. But then that completely flips 100%, which I think goes to Matt's point in terms of Gen Z has the most negative view of any single generation of cancel culture. And that's, that's pretty unambiguous in that survey data, I would say. Um, to Matt's point, that's because we are realizing that it could come from us, come for us. We have not known anything other than that. We've seen our friends and peers and celebrities that we like torn down. But the problem is, and you're completely right, Camille, that there is mass free speech skepticism. But if you have someone like me who went to a hoity-toity boarding school and did two years of a philosophy degree and then still doesn't understand what free speech means until I just happen to one day sure. decide to sit down and read John Stuart Mill, like unless you give young people the they know that something's wrong. They know that they don't like living in a, in a world where they have tripwires around them through their teenage years. But if you don't give them a restorative vision and future and path out of that, then they're just going to continue to self-censor. They're going to go continue to just bow down to the, to the really squeaky wheels that are canceling people. And honestly, like I'll admit that there is a really loud, scary minority of Gen Zers who scare the life out of both their professors and their employers. But the vast majority of us I don't believe are like that. And I, my own personal experience and survey data, I think demonstrates that. I like how we're just throwing millennials super under the bus these days. 
Like everyone's <laughs> just decided that they're the problem. They're Although choosy. I'm, I'm kind of, I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious whether uh, when John Haidt talks to you, Ricky, like uh, given that you grew up with uh, an iPhone and you're on Instagram and everything, like does he sort of treat you with radioactive tongs? Like try to put, put you in a in the boy in the bubble blanket Gen Z reference for Greg. Um, like he must be horrified by the way that you've been. Uh, in 2007 been was the year the iPhone came out. Yeah, that was over. Oh, really? Like, okay. But hey, I was but, off. But, but, but what you're talking about, Ricky, is, is um, 2010, 2011 is when the level of adoption by young people re- reached a certain critical mm-hmm. mass, and then something John points to too. Yeah, I mean, John, I've, I've, my experiences with John have just been that he's so curious because they really am at that cutting edge, and there's so few people that are young enough to have experienced what it means to grow up with social media, but old enough to be able to articulate mm-hmm. it with some degree of confidence and. I mean, I, there's going to be more and more people. I think that I think young voices as we emerge into adulthood and, and we uh, point out a lot of the the harms that were done to us by devices and social media. Like, I think there will be a lot more young people fighting against um, the status quo with technology because I don't I cannot think of I have so many friends that are ad- addicted to social media who um, who have been super overly online. And I cannot think of a single one of them that would not say that they have a problem or that that's a good thing. Yeah, Ricky said something that I thought was really interesting, like in a podcast we did this past week, um, that we were talking about the definition that we have of cancel culture, which is the uptick of campaigns to get people fired, deplatform, et cetera, um, starting around 2014 and accelerating in 2017 and the culture of fear that results from it. Yeah. Um, and she, when someone was kind of like, you know, uh, questioning that, that date, she was like, well, you know, in, in a sense, it's kind of news to me because I grew up entirely with this. And, and that was an opportunity to be like, well, the bad news is, as much as we've been picking on millennials, that one thing you can see, and John and I saw this going back to before coddling the American mind, is that cancel culture has followed Gen Z. It's basically like these habits that, um, you know, some of the ideas grew up in education schools and higher ed uh, filtering down through K through 12, but then have their like best that uh, they're best tested as weapons in places like Tumblr and that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of felt like the entire country was ruled by the most savage law of junior high school from, from 2014 uh, on. And that's kind of what happened uh, in a weird way. And it was Gen Z hitting um, higher ed in large numbers that, that we attribute to this major shift. And when you start seeing it hitting corporations, a lot of times it's 2017, 2018. Like it, like it, it almost became like boringly predictable about when you where you'd see it hit next. It's like it's it's following this generation because these are habits that were developed, you know, um, online and in the original kind of petri dish of dysfunctional ways to ways to argue. I do always want to be clear though incredibly taken advantage of by administrators who liked some students' politics, not others, and would you know. Uh, try to get the mob together to get, say, you know, um, uh, Carol Hooven at, at Harvard, but not well, there's, other professors they like the, more. The hypocrisy on free speech um, is something we've seen plenty of. I, I, I want to maybe turn to some of the, the news of the moment. Um, at the moment, we have this broil, roiling conflict um, between um, Israel and Hamas uh, and there has been uh, an extraordinary amount of interest in this conflict around the globe, particularly in the United States. People on the left and the right have sort of chosen their sides. Um, and 
one thing that we've seen a great deal of as we've seen these demonstrations on campuses, um, many instances, pro-Palestinian demonstrations, um, that there has been a visceral response uh, amongst people who are pro-Israel. And we've seen uh, boosters for particularly uni- particular universities, I believe it was at UPenn, who pulled uh, some of the financial support that they were providing for these universities. We've seen campaigns, in some cases, led by professors um, to say, hey, do not employ the young people who are coming out of our, our um, law school, like to the extent you see them associated with some of these demonstrations. These aren't the kind of people you want to have on board. Uh, it, I'm curious about the nature of what you are seeing happening on campus now, how it connects to the book, and if there isn't a line to be drawn uh, between, say, what has been described as cancel culture in the past, the the, the sort of disinvitation campaigns, for example, that we've seen a, a bunch of, um, and what's happening now, where people are, in some cases, engaging in fairly violent, at least um, sent, uh, at least controversial rhetoric. Um, and there are people who are demanding that they either be may- maybe not thrown out of school, but that they face some sort of um, personal or professional consequence. We've also seen university professors who've been formally censored um, or sanctioned um, and perhaps even facing termination as a result of things they've said. What constitutes cancel culture and what is perfectly above board, uh, a perfectly above board response to something that someone may say that that turns out to be wildly unpopular. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not totally sure what 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 the cases you're talking about are because, like at Stanford, um, you know, like that was a case that got brought up as a potential example of cancel culture, and this is a professor who literally had the Jewish students raise their hands to, to identify as being Jewish, had them take their stuff, go in the corner, and then proceeded to berate them about like. You're colonizers, and, and actually, colonizers have killed more people who were killed in the Holocaust. And actually, how many people have died in the Holocaust? Six million. Well, colon- you colonizers have killed more than that. And, and someone, I think it was actually Chris Rufo, who, who like wrote something saying, like, well, would fire defend this? And it's kind of like, no, that you can fire someone for that a million times this Sunday. That's, that, that's discrimination, that's discriminatory harassment. Like, the, 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 it, it wasn't even like particularly hard of a case. So when it comes to the formal sanctions, we haven't seen too much of that um the but you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna fight that what we have seen typically you know like uh, one thing that we fought right away was when people were saying we're gonna defund harvard because they have all these anti-semites so we're like no 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 you can't decide because of the political speech of their students that you defund them we came out right 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 against that well i mean define define here defund because this is a huge thing with the universe uh, pen right yeah like a lot of people individuals who give who have given pen money john huntsman um others um said i don't like what you guys have been doing we're going to personally not give you money that's different than like i'm going to pressure the government yeah. to remove money, in this case right? i'm talking about like people proposing congressional action you know like actual like from the government when it comes to um, people who are saying, I'm not going to give to my alma mater anymore, of course, there's a big part of me that's like, thank goodness. Like, so much of the problems we see on campus have been made possible by millionaires and billionaires feeling like they have to give to their beloved alma mater without actually saying, by the way, you should actually be keeping down the number of administrators you have, and you should be making sure that they're not policing speech, and you should be making sure 
that and this is something I say every time now because it's become so clear to me that this is happening. Every time there's a shout down in, in, in academia, every time there's a there's a campaign to get a professor canceled, the, every uh, school should look into: Did our administrators do anything to stop this? And worse, did they actually facilitate this? Because you know, it, it played, the Stanford, you know, Kyle Duncan shout down was really clear that, uh, that 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 administrators were encouraging that along and certainly weren't stopping it when they were supposed to. When it came to, I mentioned Carol Hooven, that was started by a DEI administrator, you know, saying like, basically, how dare you say biological sex is real on an interview on Fox News. You know, I was reminded by Nicholas Christakis that the crowd, you know, that that formed against him in 2015 in, in the Silliman, uh, Silliman College at Yale, you know, there were there were DEI administrators like in that angry crowd, you know, like the... Uh, so I, I mm-hmm. think that the sort of mindless giving to these already incredibly rich super corporations has been part of the problem. So if they're all saying, like, I'm going to withdraw my money, I'm like, yes, g- g- give it to other experiments. Give it to University of Texas at Austin. Like, like, g- give it to Minerva College. <laughs> give it to the Fire g- Camp of Free Speech Records. Give it somewhere else because it is, uh, it, it's, it's actually making matters worse. Now, when they say something like, you know, and you know, I was about to say, like, you have to like punish these students, or I won't donate. I, I can't really think of. Is there a case where where, where an actual specific donor said you have to like punish these particulars? Oh, right, there there was a situation then where they're saying that you shouldn't have had this anti-Israel conference, and it's kind of like, well, no, they like the they, Palestinian Rights Festival. So it's yeah. a writers' festival for Palestinian voices, and it included a lot of, or at least a number of. Uh, controversial speakers accused of being anti-Semitic by uh, critics. I'm sure they would they would depict themselves in a different way. Um, uh, and people, uh, it was I think controversial-ish at the time. It was, and yeah. then seen, especially after October seventh, as being what the fuck are you people doing? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so yeah, what? Uh, do you, so how do you wrap your head around that? Because it sounds like are you going to pressure a university not to have a literature conference over a people yeah. who uh, happen to, uh, you know, sort of overlap with this other thing. Yeah. I mean, donors, um, when they're, you know, the biggest line for me is when they're saying you got to fire this professor or punish this student. Um, if they're saying that, you know, hosting that conference was terrible, implying that you, if you, you should never host something like that again, it's up to the university to say, Thanks, but no thanks. If that's a condition of your money, I'm not going to take it. You know, um, it's the and, you know, happily watch them withdraw their money, which universities aren't generally willing to do. But, yeah, like I definitely when donors kind of try to encourage illiberal behavior, we're going to be on the other side, you know, fighting that. I do think that ones who were saying um, I do have a little bit of a different view on even though fire supports the. uh, political neutrality for schools. The 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 Calvin report from from um, the, from University of Chicago. Uh, I don't blame any donor for being for saying, "Oh, really, really? You're 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 neutral now because you said everything about George Floyd. You said everything about Ukraine. You said something like three weeks ago about a you know a, a, about some minor incident, and now we got thirteen hundred like murdered mm-hmm. civilians, um, thirteen hundred million uh, murdered Jews." And you're kind of, you know, now's the time for neutrality. So I don't blame any of them for for calling them out on that. And also, it's even worse because it's really clear to me that these university presidents, 
in many cases are incredibly sympathetic to Israel. They actually were disgusted by what Hamas said, but they were afraid of their own students and administrators and faculty, cancel culture itself. Um, they, like uh, pr Presidents were afraid of saying what they actually thought in that case. So some donors going like, come on, you coward, say what you really think. You know, even though I want them ultimately to adopt the Calvin Report, I mean, Steve Pinker's kind of idea is like, yeah, if, adopt the Calvin Report, but don't do it in a context where you're, where you're clearly saying that all these other things that were comparatively minor were awful, but this absolute right. uh, uh, true monstrous behavior is like the first time we're going to be like, well, actually, no. And by the way, like the worst thing that's going to happen, and I really want to emphasize to people because people call them, well, why don't you just take the win? Why don't you just assume now they're going to be grand free speech? And I'm like, will they? Because that, that that's going to be a long time. Harvard's got a, Harvard was dead last in our free speech ranking. They got years to prove themselves as being good, and I'm willing to bet they're going to disappoint us in maybe like three weeks. I can't remember which university it was at, but there was there was a situation where there were a, a couple of letters written by various student groups and the members of these student groups were were starting to be outed. Like you would see Twitter, entire Twitter threads with their names and their photos and people were insisting, oh, yeah. do not hire this person, you know, from from the law school. I mean, the, the question I'm asking, I suppose, in, in a way is what what is sure. where is the line? between what constitutes cancel culture and and i mean that not just merely with respect to the the kind of legal sense but the cultural sense that the two of you write about where is the line between those two things because it does seem to me that there is obviously if there's discrimination and bigotry mm -hmm. which is a bit subjective um involved then this is this is different but is that what's going on here is that what makes it acceptable yeah, definitely, to do like, this that's that something i, I you know been answered as soon as they were kind of trying to create these sort of like blacklists of people who signed on to the letter um, to make sure that they don't get hired by very you know various companies. And I and I came out very early and said like, no, this is cancel culture. Like it, the, our definition is very clear. You know, it's apolitical. That if 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 it's a campaign to make sure that someone you know either can't work or gets uh, or won't get hired or, or gets fired for their political opinion, we consider that cancel culture. And I want people to own that. If what you're saying is you think in this case it's justified, I mean, you also have to understand that's what the other side is always saying on this. But own the fact that this, this, uh, that this is cancel culture. Um, I do have one little caveat, though, on that. That I have, I think we would all be incredibly better off if these corporations hired a lot less from elite higher education in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> because these corporations, like the Harvard graduates, like this is something I've been told ever since Coddling came out over and over again, is these places that just reflexively hire from the fancies started telling me in height that, oh my God, I stopped doing that because they show up and it's not that they, you know, have strong political points of view. They basically are like, but none of you are allowed to have strong, like, it, oh my God, the IT guy's a Trump voter? We got to get rid of them. Oh, oh my God, we haven't taken a position on pro Hamas? Oh my God, like, get, you know, we, we, we've got to we've cancel the president. So I think that the sort of like political certainty you see manifest in elite higher education today is, is part of the problem. Don't like blacklists, but what I prefer actually happen is like someone say, you know, rather than just put them on a blacklist, talk to the person who actually signed it. Like, like, what, what, what was your thinking? And by the way, are you capable of working with someone who actually thinks that this was a monstrous attack and is 100% pro-Israel? Um, and, you know, like someone who actually is like, well, no, I think we should take a position that's pro-Hamas. It's like, well, 
maybe um, <laughs> maybe you should work someplace else. Ricky, you support the cancellation of Ivy League alumnus <laughs> the way Greg does. Well, to Greg's credit, when he hired me at Fire, I was um, I, I was an NYU dropout, and he changed the policy at Fire in order to drop or to to hire me. So I think I've been very gung ho on on um, loosening the the kind of stranglehold that that these institutions have on on like the gateway to success in society. I think it's really heartening to see that there are so many more corporations like Google, IBM, Tesla. Um, I think it's something like 53% of HR managers said, said that they dropped a degree requirement for at least some roles in the past year, which is staggering. And I think that is generally a, a good path forward. And I think a lot of the reason why my generation seems so insane is also because of the concentration of this very disproportionate and unrepresentative minority of really obnoxious squeaky wheels that end up ascending to the the highest echelons of society instantaneously after graduation. Greg, I want you to work me through, and Ricky, you can chime in as well, um, uh, a reaction to the public working through I've seen on uh, social media, mostly Twitter, which I still look at for some reason, um, of people who... Uh, have said, look, I have always been against cancel culture. People this week, I should yeah. hasten that. Uh, I've always been mm-hmm. against cancel culture. I'm having a hard week because <laughs> <laughs> did you see these assholes? Um, and uh, but also arguing, and you'll see this, I think, in a more kind of explicitly conservative space. But not only, um, we'll say, hey, look, we fought against cancel culture. For 10 years, we lost. They won. Now they're getting caught. We would be foolish not to use the system that these fuckers created to Mm -hmm. um, make them accountable for being explicitly Mm pro-genocidal. Help them. How do you respond to that like mental framework? Well, first, I feel like I've seen more of people assuming that's happening than that happening. Like, look, so even uh-huh. Vivek Ramaswamy came out and said, um, "Yeah, yep. put presidential candidate like no blacklist, like don't don't blacklist people. That's wrong." And I'm like, "All right, cool, like I'll, I'll take it." And um, some obnoxious, uh, I think it's Adam Schatz or something like that, came out with something saying. Where are the Harper's people? It, you know, where are the free speech people defending? <laughs> they all, they're always coming here. back for the Harper's and people. And it's kind of like, okay, yeah. um, check out, you know, I'm a free speech person and I'm pretty well known for it. Um, and my organization is fire. Check out the following 15 things, you know, like that we've, we've done in the past couple of days defending you know, a pro-Palestinian uh, speech and, and, and a culture of free speech, um, uh, you know, at that. But I got particularly kind of like bent out of shape when I'm like, but you're calling out the Harper's letter, which, by the way, was right. They were saying in 2020, basically, that cancel culture is real, although they prefer not to use that term. Um, Thomas, Thomas Chatterton Williams had actually written um, an article in The Atlantic talking about like how great it is that we're defending the free speech rights of these of, of, of these people, not like in Europe. Um, and uh, he was, you know, he's the author of the Harper's Letter. It turned out actually him and Adam Schatz were like friends, and I'm like, but that makes it even more dickish. But then I have to point out, it's like, please remember who signed the Harper's Letter. Are you saying? Salman Rushdie is a hypocrite. <laughs> what? Where did it on? Anyway, so I I've seen actually less of that um, than than definitely like the cynics uh, would would expect. Um, the now, if someone is arguing that 
this isn't someone that, like this isn't uh, what was the name of that journalist? Um, Dave Weigel. You know, Dave Weigel uh, retweeted a joke. There was an article going around saying something like a huge percentage of Gen Z women um, say that they are bisexual, um, but a surprising number of them have only only ever have sex with men. Um, and that article was going around and he retweeted something by a comedian saying, well, you know, all women are bi, uh, bisexual or bipolar. And he got immediately suspended from the Washington Post. And it's for retweeting a joke. And, peop- and people like Ilya Shapiro, I think, and a couple other people are making the argument that like, cancel culture is really about people saying relatively sort of like tame things and having their lives ruined about it. These are people who are saying, you know, the baby murderers and rapists are right. And that feels kind of different. So I have, I, I have some sympathy for this. I'm not one of these people who like it, like expects people other than, you know, free speech defenders to be perfectly consistent on this stuff. People are more, but I do always try to remind people when it comes to the uh, cancel culture part of it, like the, like the argument, because you we're not saying that the law should come in and re- and say that corporations um, can't decide who they want to hire. Actually, we think it would be terrible if, if, if the law came in and said like, fire, you know, if someone, I, I suddenly f- found out that someone was like, uh, uh, you know, anti-free speech in my organization that I couldn't be like, nope, you don't belong here at, at, anymore. We don't want that to be the law. But when it comes to look, what corporations should think about is that if every company in the world, every, every company in the country becomes both a widget factory and a shop with a political opinion, which by the way, seemed like it has was happening in 2020 and 2021, and the boss thinks BLM is great, and you say something you know not so nice about it that y- your career is over. Mm-hmm. That basically you would have free speech in theory, but you couldn't have a job and actually have a, 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 a dissenting opinion. So basically, kind of like I, we emphasize the idea that like everyone's entitled to their opinion is something that we should repeat till we're blue in the face. Is that necessarily going to get Goldman Sachs to want to hire someone who said you know kill all the Jews? Um, Maybe not, but if they would consider free, uh, uh, freedom of speech and, and be- people's right to their opinions um, more often, that would be much better than the situation we're currently in. Yeah, think- Ricky, you would draw 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 line in a similar place. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I generally agree with Greg, and I think um, a, a term that I only recently came across recently um, was I think Rushdie's term about the butt brigade when it comes to free speech and how Mm. everyone seems to have a different line in saying, I believe in free speech, but, and I would really love to personally be able to draw the lines and contours of acceptable speech. I'm sure that society would be much better if I was able to, but I think that we all think (laughs) as much. And um, so I think, I mean, it's, it's really interesting as we were writing this book, um, we bring up the anecdote of Greg having to defend speech regarding 9-11 while smoke was still quite literally rising from the rubble. And I remember re- as we were writing that thinking like, oh, that's that sounds really shitty. Sorry that you had to do that, Greg. <laughs> and then this book comes out. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Here you go again. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, now I'm, I'm understanding. Um, like, it, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a a challenging time, but I think also a really like a test of, of um, our principles. And also I think could not make the book more relevant than it is right now for sure. Yeah. I mean, these, these are ideas that as, as I've said on a number of occasions, like we will always have to, to make the argument for, because it seems that people are constantly forgetting um, why free speech matters and, and the degree to which um, it's, it's an essential 
value that one has to have if you hope to maintain a free society. You might even say um, I, I do want it's an eternal oh, that it's an it. eternally radical idea. Yes, yes, yes. That huh. is wage a forever war to to defend it. Um, I, I want to p- perhaps pick a little bit of a fight with you both. Do it. Um, because I'm somewhat skeptical of the phrase cancel culture. Um, my perspective is that it, it both kind of sounds a little cartoonish. And for that reason, people don't, don't really take it seriously. But I, I'm also worried that it somewhat understates the yeah. problem. Um, because there's a reality in which there's always been things that you can't say yeah. and things that are kind of out of bounds and people will not like you for it. Um, so in that respect, it's not that aspect of it isn't new. But while we do live in a somewhat irreligious country here in the United States, um, there is a sense in which we've seemingly never been more fundamentalist about things Um, and and vehemently anti-pluralism in some respects. Um, We are we're happy to be amongst people who agree with us vehemently. We've defined diversity in the most narrow, kind of preposterous way possible, where it doesn't actually matter what you look like, but it matters a great deal what you happen to think. And if you don't agree with me, you're the wrong kind of person. Um, and we're unwilling to hire you or associate with you. I mean, that that is a, a, a sort of dangerous dynamic that's been documented over time. And it seems that we are, in fact, getting more fundamentalist. So I, I wonder if you would take issue with me insisting that cancel culture is perhaps not a, a severe enough term and may run the risk of understating the problem or at least suggesting a problem that is kind of too too small. Mm-hmm. Are you not going far enough? Uh, that, that's actually not the argument where we're used to hear it, so that's actually pretty cool. Um, but we should explain why, and neither Ricky or I actually even particularly like the term cancel culture. We say this a couple times in the book. It kind of makes us made, made, made me cringe a little bit. But then when I looked at the research in terms of what people, the name that most Americans understand this as, overwhelmingly it's cancel culture. And black, white, liberal, conservative, they're afraid of cancel culture. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and that, uh, and they, and, and they're afraid of, it and they hate it. And that's the name they know for it. So if I, you know, and I, I was invoked Jason Stanley, if I tried to like change the name of it to make Jason Stanley happy, I would, could make him happy about it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd leave 90% of the American public out of, out, out of discussion. So we decided to go like, this is the term that people know. And I don't, I didn't want to also give a win to the, the idea of like all those people are saying this wasn't real. Oh no, they're not saying right. it's cancel culture. They're saying it's it, it it's you know I don't know Greg's disapproved thing. Like I got kind of like like the, like that come up with some <laughs> dumb term for it. But the idea that it's actually um, it doesn't convey the seriousness of it is something I like. Uh, Tim Urban has a better term than woke um, because woke is a little bit of a mess and what it actually means mm-hmm. is just kind of an insult. Um, and it's really hard to pin down exactly what you're talking about. But his term for woke. Uh, uh, but 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 he doesn't just mean woke. It means exactly like, but also means exactly like so social justice fundamentalism. Um, which mm-hmm. I have like yes, exactly. What 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 actually your social justice tenants actually start behaving like a fundamentalist religion. That's what we're concerned about. But Ricky, yeah, but I would I to to our point, I would say that if you ask the typical American, how do you feel about social justice fundamentalism, they'd be like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So I, I think that it's, it's important to maintain a, a broad, a broad stroke. I mean, 
I I always laugh because I remember when woke was kind of the transgressive thing to throw around and we would call people woke in my friend circles. And then all of a sudden I heard my father start saying it and I was like, oh, that's not cool (laughs) anymore. And I very much feel the same way with cancel culture. But I do think that like we do take it in a more serious way than just the topical sense that the the word would or the term would suggest, because we do um, advocate that that the antidote to cancel culture is free speech culture, which I mean, I think that really it, it gets to the root of classical liberal values. And, and cancel culture is just, I think, in, in our in our view, one manifestation of the unhelpful ways that people argue and one manifestation of how society is drifted away from from classical liberal values that underpin a free society. And I, I think that we do take it far more seriously than, than some people who misuse and abuse the term may make it seem as though we do. I wonder about the aspect, just hearing you say that um, in a moment. And, um, and you know, when this podcast started in 2016 um, with, you know, Camille's idiosyncratic views on uh, quite a few things, but also all of us <laughs> being, um, uh, allergic to the 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 over ease with which people would toss around accusation uh, of fill in the blank ism, um, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that you are um, exhibiting hatred towards some group of people, um, and that using this uh, as kind of a weapon was a way. And I've made this analogy before, and might be weird, but. It's akin to strategic lawsuits against public participation. Yeah. Right? Slap statutes. Mm-hmm. Um, those statutes um, are there because some people will sue, um, uh, usually a corporation or some kind of, or a rich individual uh, is annoyed with Camille Foster so much that just starts suing him. Like, God damn it, shut up. I'm going to give you a bunch of nuisance lawsuits and you'll stop criticizing me. Scientology actually does this uh, to them, probably the most spectacular degree, but many people uh, have done this over the years. And so you have these anti-slap statutes um, because the idea is uh, that this is an abuse of the existing legal system in order to silence a critic, to marginalize them from the public participation. I have always thought that accusing always i've i've grown to think over the last seven to ten years that accusing people specifically of being racist uh, most of all um but it can also be homophobic or anti-trans sometimes it can be anti-semitic too um is an attempt to short circuit um uh uh someone's criticism and to just get quickly to a place where they are taken out of the field um I wonder how this fits in with the concept of cancel culture as you see it. Um, um, is that in itself, it's not necessarily um, like I'm trying to get this person fired. It's I am trying to insinuate that Camille is racist. Um, and if I do that loudly enough, um, uh, and the, um, the, this is in response, Ricky, I was I thought of this about the culture of free speech that the, like, it's not just enough to say that cancel culture is bad. It's like, you want to promote the values of free speech. Mm-hmm. It strikes me <clears throat> that getting to shortcuts of you are anti something ist or whatever, um, is, is anti that culture. How do you kind of grok that? And this is a particularly difficult week because you see actual anti-Semitism yeah. in the wake of a horrific murder. Um, and yet I find myself um, s- 
flinching a little bit, and I'm uh, uh, say this someone who considers myself sort of a friend of the of the state of Israel, having having been there and just uh, like like it, like people. Um, uh, you know, people immediately equating anti-Zionism with being anti-Semitic, for example. Um, so, how does that kind of that play? Um, not necessarily, particularly the anti-Semitic thing, but just that um, that move that people make. How does that play in your concept of of either cancel culture and or the sort of positive culture of free speech that we would want to have? I should probably say, for the record, I am, in fact, racist, um, uh, just against all races. I knew it. So, just, yeah. Finally. Yeah. If, um, yeah. It's out there. It's fine with it. I, I'm comfortable with that fact. Well, it's actually a major theme of the book is that, one, we're trying to show that it's real and it's on a historic scale. Um, uh, the cancel culture is real and it's something they're going to be studying in 100 years because it's like it, it is historically unique. Um, but the second part is that uh, we should think of cancel culture as just the nastiest, most extreme way to win arguments without winning arguments. And we try to situate it in a lazy, unhelpful rhetorical strategy. Um, we, we first cover the ones that the right and left both use, and, that's, um, and then we talk about the perfect rhetorical fortress, which is the one kind of developed on campus by the left, and the re- efficient rhetorical fortress, which is more of the Fox News, Pearl Mag out kind of version of it, which is just don't have to listen to anybody who's being a liberal, an expert, a journalist, or doesn't like Trump. But the perfect rhetorical fortress is layer after layer after layer of ways to not actually have to address other people's arguments. And one of the things that we're trying to say, we're trying to remind people of like where we actually would like to be. We'd like to be in a situation where we could argue towards truth or, you know, as I get technical about it. By chipping away at falsity, which is basically as close as you're ever going to get to truth. And you will never get there if you basically like run out the clock by just being like, oh, well, I don't have to listen to you because you're, you're white, you're cis, you're, uh, you're not gay, or like whatever, like all of these like little things that we use. And we, by the way, we, we have some fun following this down the rabbit hole and being like, okay, so first of all, step one, the perfect control fortress is if I can call you conservative, even if you're not, but all of us, you know, would be dismissed as right-wingers and probably are sometimes, even though we're all, all over the map, um, that that's something that is actually an effective technique in, uh, in debates, which is, you know, it's a BS childish technique, but we still kind of accept it as being part of it. And that's just step one. I think we have like 18 steps, you know, to it, but then we go through all the demographic steps pretty quickly that gets you down to about 0.9% of the population. Um, and then, of course, you can dismiss that as being conservative. But if you're even in that 0.9%, you're like a trans, uh, like a trans non, non-white uh, person, um, that if you have the wrong opinion, guess what? You're extra wrong. Like, you're, you're particularly singled out. You, you, have, um, uh, you, you have internalized misogyny. You have internalized transphobia. <laughs> I apparently have that. <laughs> we oh, just did Jordan Peterson's podcast, and I've heard that I apparently am infected with internalized misogyny. Yeah. Oh, honey, Makes I sense. didn't know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> kind of <does>. external, <laughs> to be honest. But... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> How do, to be fair, how does it Peterson feel? did corner me. Oh my god! Um, I feel like a, a traitor, but you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, w- it, w- it was funny. I actually had such respect for Ricky because because um, uh, Peterson, like his whole thing was talking about toxic femininity, and he like went right into kind of like all, like all like all these gender issues related to freedom of speech. And it was really clear he was like really going off because he had this like you know twenty three year old girl in front of him. 
But I loved like looking over and seeing the expression on Ricky's face because there was definitely this kind of like dukes up kind of like trying to smile but being like, okay, I can handle it. I was Did- waiting for the moment that I really royally put my foot in my mouth, <laughs> but somehow I think it turned out okay. I don't uh, know. You, but- you did great. And when I was faced with that, like I, I just went to statistics. So I was kind of like, well, this one, this one, this one, this one. Well, that's why I was there as the resonant young woman to field all those questions for you. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but if he hadn't been there, I don't think you would have asked him in the first place. You know? Um, yeah, no, that's true. Anyway, so w- we hope that we can actually argue towards truth because we could, because here, here's the, here's the small benefit of arguing towards truth. You can solve things in the real world if you're not just arguing about what someone's identity is in an effort to scare them out of their opinion, whether it's true or not. We could fix things for realsies if we actually argued better. But then you're still surrounded by all of the racists and the various <laughs> otherists. We have to get rid of all of them. We have to purge the temple. That's what we need to do. All of the temples and get rid of those people. Uh, then we'll be clean. I mean, I, I, it's... I think I think um there was one review that I read about the book uh that offered a criticism not that there's only one review that might be somewhat skeptical so I'm I'm curious to know what you what your critics have had to say about the book um but one review that I read I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal where they flagged you all um for describing some of the legislation that's been passed in places like Florida um, restricting uh, the the kind of books that could be in libraries or uh, otherwise setting up different yeah. um, apparatuses, legal apparatuses for kind of screening out books because of their content um, that you described these as book bans and they took issue yeah. with the use of that phrase. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the manifestation of that kind of stuff, which we've talked about in the past, the critical race theory mm-hmm. bans, which were, very popular at one point and we're going to save the day and get rid of all of these various problems, but no one talk about talks about those anymore. And it seems like there's still problems. Um, but even more than that, now we do have these restrictions. Are they in fact book bans? Is it fair to say that? Um, and what's the status of those, uh, legislations these days? Yeah, no, I, I, I read that and I really wish, uh, fire had come out with it. Uh, our FAQ on, on book bans, um, that we'd written weeks ago. We've just been so overwhelmed. We're like, oh, we'll just push this thing off. We'll put off the Calvin report, you know, uh, the, the recommendation that we had, we had, a, you know, in the can months ago. Uh, because like what could possibly happen on say October 7th, <laughs> you know, like, 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 yeah. like the, um, and so we have this FAQ that we really wish we had been done for a while. And we're trying to be the, like, FIRE tries to be the adult mm-hmm. in the room on a lot of this stuff. We, we try to be thoughtful and serious and try to, like, parse our way through it. And we try to explain, um, if you're saying that a book, uh, that there was, like, a case where there was a, a poem, I can't remember the name of the author, um, but it was a poem that was read at the uh, at, at Obama's inauguration. Uh, yeah, someone objected to it being hyper political. But it was in the part of the library that was for third graders. And after evaluating it, even though the claim was just that it's like you know propaganda, they're like, you know what? Actually, this is more appropriate for seventh or eighth graders. Like, and I remember talking about this with the fire, and then the kind of like. Well, why would don't you leave it in the third graders? The third graders wouldn't even understand it. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah. I mean, like that's why they move it to different parts of the library. You know, like, is that third graders wouldn't understand it. So that's not a book ban. Like deciding that something is uh, not age appropriate is not a book ban. 
what is a book ban, and these and these really do happen, and, and, and fire has been involved in these cases. What one, most dramatically, is sending a police officer to arrest somebody for having a book in their library, which we have seen, and we're like, no, oh, that's a book ban as far as we're concerned. Um, or, for example, not removing something, you know, people can disagree on on, on the appropriate of gender queer, you know, for, for different ages, because it includes like a picture of someone uh it's actually a couple pictures of someone wearing a strap on and getting uh getting oral sex from both seeing it from above and then 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 from another angle and you know people can argue about whether or not they think that what age they think that's actually appropriate for but one thing that is clear is it's protected overall so if a, if a public library for example decided you know what we're going to put this into the adult section instead of the kids section you know that's within their judgment to do if however uh, state law said you have to remove that entirely from the library. That's a book ban, and we we saw this similar thing happening. And it, so it's most dramatic when you have laws that actually affect books in bookstores, and we, and that we saw that in Virginia, Bob Porter Revere, and five, it was our, um, our our you know our most uh, seasoned First Amendment lawyer who we used to work with it as a partner in a law firm is now part of the team. Uh, you know, we fought that, and that's you know that, that's restricting the rights of actual you know private businesses. We think that's especially egregious when it comes to um, when it comes to public libraries. You know, saying that someone's got to remove a book, and this does happen. That's a book ban. Um, when it's uh, but un- unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that gets called a book ban is um, is someone saying, "I don't think this book uh, you know is appropriate for someone this age," and that's a, that is a little bit more. Um, a, a, a little bit harder of a call, and also, what's not a book ban is saying um, uh, that th- these books will or will not be in the curriculum. Because if you don't actually understand that public school curriculums have always been a political, like a political football, like essentially people fighting over what should actually be taught, that's just part. Like they're mandatory institutions. Your kids have to go to them. They're taxpayer funded. Um, th- there being some democratic, you know, saying what actually gets taught is something that I, as a parent whose kids go to public school, believe in very strongly. And I'm seeing people who are, you know, I think in some cases kind of exaggerating the number of book bans out there, essentially saying that they think that education school graduates, K through 12 people should be, should get the final say in all of this stuff, which I think is insane because like so much of the, of the problems we actually fight in higher education come from sort of like the um, some of the uh, illiberal ideas that actually come out of education schools. So book bans are real, to be really clear. Just sometimes some of the numbers you hear about their prevalences. I'm curious uh, for both of you, but we'll start with Ricky. Um, you hear in the wake of the October 7th attack and the campus um, kind of uh, uh, discontents and the backlash against it, the University of Pennsylvania most uh, notably, here with that, but we also heard a little bit in the run-up to this um, a notion that peak <laughs> woke, peak cancel culture, peak whatever the thing that was that we all went yeah. kind of mm-hmm. mad in 2020, we're kind of on the other side of it, um, especially mm-hmm. in light of this past week, also in light of just kind of you landing a book and talking about it. Um, and thinking kind yeah. of like in these broader things, what do you think? Um, oh, 23 year old. Um, are we, are we on the other side of it? Are we, are we going downhill finally? I think that people have been really eager to say that cancel culture or wokeness is over 
every single time we've had a flare up. Um, mm. I, I would say that 2016 was a pretty good example of the first like real major wave of an election cycle that delved us into cancel culture. And then I, I mean, I myself probably in 2018 would have been like, Oh yeah, that was kind of a weird little blip that we had. And then 2020 happened and sure enough, it was even worse than the last time. And now here we have um, not only the past week or so's news, but an impending, very divisive election. And I think that 2024 is going to be uh, worse, frankly, personally. I mean, I think a society that's not that that's just so out of touch with with the values of free speech is going to indulge in liberalism anytime there's uh, major social unrest. And I think um, I, I, history is suggested as much. And I, I'm very nervous to see what the next year or so um, has in store for us, unfortunately. <laughs> Thanks for harshing my buzz. <laughs> Greg, are you <laughs> similar to <laughs> pessimistic? Greg, are you hopeful? Uh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, and, I, I, and I'm temperamentally optimistic. Like, I definitely, like, talk about, you know. I, I, I'm <laughs> not, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. Came through, Ricky. Uh, um, but no, I, I, I think that um, I, the frustrating thing about um, some of the cancel culture is over is it seems to come from the same people who said that it was a hoax <laughs> to begin with and it wasn't really real. And then by the evidence got overwhelming, it's like, oh, but it's over now. It's like, come on. I remember someone saying um, that I actually kind of like in, in other ways that, oh, the, 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 the problem of campus intolerance, cancel culture ended in 2018, like wrote a big article about this because – our disinvitation database showed it wasn't that bad of a year. But that rush, I mean, I saw Adam Gurry do this too, basically being kind of like, well, the initial data, you know, like that means that uh, this is a problem so small that if it, if it was occurring, the number of professors getting fired, if it's occurring at any other time, we would consider the problem effectively solved. And I'm like, okay, you know literally nothing about how many professors get fired like uh, like in a normal year. Like if you think that it's normal for a thousand professors to be targeted for, uh, you know, 200 to be fired, 40 of them freaking tenured, six, you know, uh, two thirds of that 1000 being punished in some way. That is historically really weird. You've got one in six professors, one in six saying that they have been investigated Wild. or threatened with investigation for their for their academic freedom. You got something like we just did like nine percent. We did like um, and this data isn't out yet, but of students say that they've been investigated for their speech, and it's like and and it's funny. Like when I talk to some of the younger people in fire, I was like, well, that doesn't sound like that. <laughs> That's I'm a like, lot. One in ten. Yeah. Like, 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 and then, and then, and part of the book is establishing like how many how many conformity inducing mechanisms like we we already have. So the problem mm -hmm. is really deep, and it's one of the reasons why I end up saying things that sound so cuckoo like. You know what? If we had a test that was impossibly hard to pass, but I'll bet it, you could show that you understood everything that a humanities student would have to understand at, you know, Princeton in the 1950s, and you could pass it, that you should get a bachelor's that is more prestigious than from any, any other thing out there. I want to, like, I increasingly want to circumvent the entire system because I'm just not, like, it, it, it has such a long way to go on, uh, to be fixed. And yeah, and 2024 is going to be a rough year. Um, and I don't know from exactly what direction it comes, you know, certainly sometimes there are years where there seems to be a little bit more of a threat from the right that the, but I think we're all going to completely lose our minds again next year. Um, I think we have a little bit of a preview already, uh, but you know. <laughs> well, I, I do want to, I want to throw two questions at you. Um, one who's worse in, in the States, the left or the right. Um, and two, are you tracking this, 
internationally. Um, the, there does in fact seem to be kind of <laughs> some, some kind of global trends with respect to a proclivity towards polarization, uh, a lack of an appetite for free yeah. speech and pluralism. You certainly see in places like Canada, various parts of Europe that are supposed to be, you know, um, <clears throat> first world countries, um, uh, a, a kind of hostility yeah. towards free speech, a vehement explicit hostility towards free speech in a lot of cases. Um, yeah, and it, it a lot of it is flying it. under the guise of disinformation and misinformation. Um, it, it, I am, I am dispositionally optimistic as well. I am pretty concerned about the state of affairs. Um, and I don't have an expectation that things will get dramatically better, that people are sort of sufficiently concerned um, about this degradation of their yeah. their freedoms in the in the states and certainly in other places if they don't even believe that it's a legitimate freedom that they they think it's absolutely essential that there be all yeah. sorts of prohibitions on the things that you can say and compulsory things that you must say with respect to other people and how they must be uh, must be uh, addressed in public like this is a, a disconcerting trend um and actually now that I'm yeah. going to let me pile this on third thing because I don't know that we've ever talked about it. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the French well, you know goodbye and the Mauritian goodbye. Uh, Go yeah, on. I'll just leave it there. I'll park it there. Ricky, Greg, I'm, I'm curious about your well, now perspective. Now I'm dying to know the third thing. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I remember talking to someone about this, and I have this experience that when I – you know, like, and I get, we were giving a talk at, in San Francisco, and these two people who knew nothing about the topic, but since they're good at business, they assume they know everything else. Who, who are you taking you know, shots basically at? Basically, we're like, Isn't that anybody who I work with? me at a dinner <laughs> that we were doing about, like, cancel culture could possibly be real, you know, um, and that it's just like, and it's like, wow, you literally, like, know nothing about this topic. Um, and, then we started pointing out, you know, like all, all of the people on the left that we helped. Um, uh, it, it, uh, uh, and suddenly we noticed that we were getting a little bit more kind of like, oh, you know, you, you helped you just supported <laughs> Nicole Hannah-Jones. And like suddenly I could see them like clicking that they suddenly had some respect for us. I'm like, great. You have some respect for us. And I have zero respect for you now because you <laughs> should care if it's people you hate getting in trouble. Thank you very much. Um, but I, so sometimes when I try this tactic though, it's really funny how it works. So of those 1000 cases that I was talking about, um, and of the six, two thirds of those who were punished, about one third of, of those 600 ish come from, uh, initially usually off campus because there's just not that many conservatives on campus in the first place, but come from the right. They come from Fox news, they come from turning point USA, et cetera. I mean, they still have to, the people actually doing the firing oftentimes are still on the left because that's everyone who runs universities, but still like the actual impetus, you know, comes from the right. And I remember having someone go like, I can do math. That's what you're, you're saying that then like what 60% of them, you know, are from the left. I'm like, Oh, Oh honey. Uh, like, um, yes. Yes, I mean campuses are overwhelmingly they're 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 run by super majority left. Um, I, I I I think Sam Abrams you know figured out there was like twelve times as many con, uh, liberal uh, or left leaning progressive um, uh, administrators as there are conservative. You know, like that there are literally departments, particularly in elite higher education, that have not a single conservative. It's basically an infinite you know uh, comparison. So. I feel like I, I'm constantly dealing with people who want me to reassure them 
that when it comes to a lot of these cases, the right is much worse. And I'm like, the right aren't in higher education to a large degree. Like you point to Hillsdale, you can point to some of these other schools, you know, you know that um, don't even promise free speech in the first place. But for the big freaking industry, it's kind of like, no, you got to own this. Like it's, I, I still consider myself left of center. It's coming from inside the house people. Now, when it comes to threats from the right, those are real. Um, but for example, you know, when it comes to uh, threats to the curriculum, um, that fire opposes. We took the Stop Woke Act to court. We defeated the Stop Woke Act in Florida in court. And I'm under the. I seem to be under the impression that people think there have been dozens and dozens of attacks on higher education curriculum. As best we can tell, there has been one, which is the Stop Woke Act, which we defeated in court. And there's a Stop Woke Two that they're trying, which is you know basically like just rewriting a little bit that I think we will also defeat in court. So yeah, I mean like a lot of the problem of council culture is on the right. Uh, sorry, is on the left. We have three chapters where we talk about it coming from coming from the right, but basically people who need to be reassured it can't possibly be my people are are gonna not like the book. And I and I have to live with that. I'm also my dad's Russian, my mother's British. I lived over there a lot. I lived in Prague and um I read the prognosis and everything. Um and uh that's that, that, I think that was Matt's paper. And the um uh uh when it comes to the international dynamics about right versus left in Europe, that's just completely different. Um, the uh, well, actually, I mean, I mean, I'm afraid of the Trump Republicans when it comes to things like free speech. To be clear, like I, I think like that could be really terrifying because they actually remind me more. I remember actually in 2012 with Mitt Romney being like, "Oh, well." America should stop complaining. At least our right isn't like ethno-nationalist, you know, authoritarian right. Hmm. And it's like, oh shit. Um, did I do that? Yeah. Like, did I just like jinx things all of a sudden? Um, the, you know, the, the struggle in Europe between like Putinism, Orbanism, and, um, you know, like the, the, these, these really totalitarian movements is terrifying, but you also have, you, you have a fundamental lack of yeah. respect for freedom of speech on both sides of the fence, just in countries, the, you know, in the UK or France and, and Germany, just the left is very much clearly in control, but you know, they've been banning Palestinian flags. I mean, Something we point this out. Something like four thousand, almost four thousand people were arrested for po posting offensive things online in 2016. Arrested in 2016 alone in Britain. Like, and I'm trying to point out the Pomerades, the two years of the Pomerades, which was like the, the arrests of people um, for in the first Red Scare, was about three thousand, four thousand. You know, like, and this happened in one year for comments that were considered kind of rude um, on on the interwebs. So we're in a fix. And the problem is, and I've, and I've warned about this for a long time, I am comfortable with the idea that people will always be like, I like free speech, uh, but this one really bothered, like, the, like this kind of speech really bothers me. I'm like, okay, I disagree with you, but I can accept that as being kind of like a normal human, you know, tendency that they have their one thing that really bugs them. What I was afraid was coming, it's been coming for a long time, is actually opposing to free, yeah. uh, opposing free speech in principle. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot more of that, as if it's kind of like sophisticated intellectual thought that's been brewing on campus. Oh yeah, and it has been brewing on campus in intellectual circles for long for a long. It's just an incredibly simplistic, uh, simplistic thought masquerading yeah. as a philosophy. On the on the left, it's often it, free speech is not is not great for various minority groups. On the right, I've heard it articulated that free speech is generally is is a, a kind of a, a naive 
um, obsession of people who don't appreciate how the left is going I mean, to use free speech as a weapon to hollow out the country and destroy America forever and ever. Amen. Um, but yeah, we, we don't need to, to try and unravel those preposterous arguments this evening. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to throw at you both is, um, and, and I, Greg, I don't know that we've ever talked about it, but there's been some talk about this sort of social justice fundamentalism, uh, being almost like a kind of a faith. Um, and there is a, a question that I've mm-hmm. wondered about, you know, we, we do have the establishment cause, um, and that would certainly prevent the state from establishing something as a religion, but, but exactly when does something qualify as a religion? Does there have to be a commitment to a deity? I mean, when, when is it that a a kind of an ethical system uh, that is pretty well codified that finds its way into the the statements and the policies of various organizations, some of them explicitly private. Okay. Um, but in other cases, public universities where they have these various DEI statements, for example, in order to 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 be a member in good standing or to su- to submit uh, a paper to a publication. At what point does this start to run afoul of the law? I can see why, in principle, it would generally be incompatible with this notion of a culture of free speech. But is it possible? that this might actually be something that is is genuinely incompatible with the the first amendment on the grounds that hey this is a this is a codified belief system you don't actually get to legislate that sort of thing did, did you know, this, this is a uh, argument that Vivek Ramaswamy to come up again that makes yeah. him woke racism uh, sorry makes him woke incorporated that essentially he thinks that um uh what he would call wokeism is so similar to a religion or so much a religion um that it should be you should be able to ban it under the establishment clause um as being like in workplaces and that kind of stuff as far as a practical way to distinguish it um i we, it's just like a constitutional nightmare like trying to figure out like when a strictly held belief system actually um becomes something akin to establishment of, re- of religion I can't think of a way to do it that actually could make coherent sense uh, to a degree. Um, so, so that's kind of like why I don't think you can use the establishment clause against um, th- social justice fundamentalism. From, uh, but that's me with my kind of law hat on. Me with my kind of like you know um, the, the social science obsession hat on. I remember talking to Height at one point, just being like. So, Height, are are, uh, are we saying that we think that social justice has many similarities to religion or were we saying that it really has taken the place yeah. of religion he was very clear he's like it's taken the place of religion like it, it has superstition it has, it, has catechism, saints, yeah. it, has, it has the whole thing and of course yeah and and our our, our advisory council mm-hmm. member john mcwhorter in in uh in, in woke, woke racism um makes the argument too and I, and I think he's right but how to actually make that somehow actionable in a way that wouldn't be a complete you know, because immediately they start saying, mm-hmm. "Well, worship of Trump is, is establishment clause," and I'm like, "Yeah, I, I, uh, I think it would. I, I think it's an interesting idea, um, and I think there's it, it, it's sound in, in a number of ways. But as a legal, you know, solution, I think it's a yeah. really huge freaking quagmire and mess. And and yeah, let's say Ricky's been saying too little. No, I, I mean, I don't really know that anyone really wants to know what the <laughs> is why you're here about that necessarily. <laughs> probably the First Amendment lawyer is the better one. Um, but I mean, I can say for sure, just anecdotally, um, 
in in growing up in in my generation and also going to NYU that I have a lot of people in my mind that I know personally who very much adopted this as a religion and I think almost grew up with it in place of a religion in their in their minds um but I don't know on the legal grounds I I defer to my co-author that's why this that's great. Is so great uh well do you got anything else before we before we let our our wonderful guests get back to their to their normal lives and their evenings just just to Schlott, uh, uh, actually, quick ones for you both, but for Schlott first. Uh, after the last 10 days, more proud, less proud of being an NYU semi-alum? <laughs> I'm super proud of being an NYU dropout, actually, so that's the best possible answer. <laughs> and and Lukianov, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but of the categories Thank you for of- saying my name right, Matt. I don't say that to you enough. There's going to be very few of us, and I will say almost <laughs> no other names, correct, including Camille's, but I, I will get yours right. You know, you're some um, Slavic. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, one of the top two, three, four categories of people <laughs> who get their balls busted on campus are men over the last 10, 15 years having to do with speech are pro-Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that accurate, or can you characterize that? I would say that if you talk to, I remember being at a conference where I got the impression that uh, it, and it was like, um, uh, it was actually the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement at Berkeley, which was really revealing to me. I got invited there because I wrote something about calling out the chancellor of Berkeley for saying, you know, I believe in free speech, but it has to be nice. You know, and it, like it was a ridiculous. It statement. was literally, yeah. it was literally the statement they made in the anniversary of the free speech movement. It's like, yeah, you know, speech. You know, I'm not so sure. It was uh, incredible. Yeah, coupled with civility and, and kindness and, and, and groveling. Um, and and I, I wrote something about the Wall Street Journal that got me by the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement. And it was a train wreck. Um, I didn't actually understand that some of these old people actually thought this meant that, you know, the speaker is not allowed to speak. Uh, every heckler has something just as interesting to say as the actual panel. Like, it was just kind of, it was just stupid. And I got to see... And there was this guy, I remember, like, I'll never forget, like, you kept on interrupting. He's kind of like, you know, I, people keep on saying, you know, everyone's trying to accuse me of being anti-Semitic. But I think we can all agree that the poison hand of Zionism corrupts everything it touches. I'm like, oh, wow, you are anti-Semitic. Like, congratulations. It was a hand or was it more like a tentacle of an octopus? I, I, I imagine it was more tentacling. Um, and the, uh, but there was some, someone from, um, uh, one of the Palestinian groups that we've defended a lot, uh, you know, o- over the years, like one of the Palestinian student groups that we've defended and fire has defended them all the time. But I, I heard her presentation and I was kind of like, you really seem to be under the impression that these are the only cases that are happening on campus. They're a percentage to sure. And we defend you every time you get in trouble, the Jewish students get in trouble as well, but it's a small percentage of the entire sort of picture of like what's going on on campus. You're much more likely to get in trouble um, because here's the thing is, as we saw on this campus, that's actually a pretty popular point of view on a lot of these campuses these days being pro-Palestinian or, 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 or so if you can reach the point where you're being pro-Hamas, that's probably because you come from a campus where it's kind of taking for granted. Good people are pro-Palestinian. Those, those cases come up. We, we, we have like, um, we've had a lot of cases, you know, defending that over the years. We, we never, uh, we do, we do so like really happily, but I do think sometimes people think that that's all that's happening on campus when, and he's, and actually for both of you, 
here is something that really irks me. There is an entire middle category of cases um, where they're neither right nor left. They're mm. just good old-fashioned abuses of power. They can be really horrifying, and they get like zero coverage in the news because they make yeah. no, they don't have political valence, and people are kind of like, well, that's just someone expelling a student because they didn't like what they had to say. <laughs> Nothing to um, see here. You know, for no clear political <laughs> reason. Like, that's... Not okay, by the way. Um, so I'm, I'm always, I call those the orphans of the culture war that kind of like the only people who pays any attention to them is fire and, I mean, and, there's, and reason. <laughs> there's, uh, yeah, and thank you for that. That I think that there's, it, it, uh, it is concurrent with your prior critique, even on this podcast, of the structural aspect of all these administrators looking for a thing to do, all these departments looking for a thing to do. There is structural anti-free speechism, um, and the way that free speech stuff gets talked about inevitably is in right-left combat or whatever, just normal political combat. But um, you know, structural like racism or fill-in-the-blankism oftentimes is this nonsense term, or it's like it makes it seem more sophisticated than it is, or it's an assumption about a system that may or may not exist. But there is, I would imagine actually kind of structural anti-free speechism, and it's going to be not particularly interesting to the people who yell about politics and then dip into free speech when it suits their needs. And that's suggestive maybe of some future way of thinking about the yeah. issue, I guess. Well, I, I yep. want to encourage people Agreed. to go out and purchase the book. Um, I want you to support it, not only because I, I like Ricky and Greg, um, but I do believe that The Canceling of the American Mind is an important book um, it is uh, in that great pantheon of books defending free speech um, with a deep appreciation for the notion that there is a culture of free speech that has to be defended, that this is uh, this institution um, of free speech, both legally and culturally, is an, an indispensable technology that allows us to do what uh, Rauch des describes in his book, um, this this kind of technology that allows us to discover truth. Like to the extent we do not have this tool at our disposal, we are all much worse off for it. Um, this book um, is a, an excellent articulation of the current state of play um, in those battles, offers some great recommendations for how to address this problem, um, and it's a, it's a starting point in that respect. Um, and uh, we, we will always be engaged in these contests um, and arming yourself with the best available arguments and the best information for actually how to navigate this is invaluable. Um, so thank you both for uh, continuing this important work. Greg, as a, as a board member at FIRE, I will say, I think you did a pretty good job tonight. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about it in your performance review. Um, but uh, thank you both for, uh, for making time this evening. <laughs> yes, sir. It's always a, a pleasure to connect with you. Um, but uh, I think thank that's about you. it. I think we've, we've done we've done pretty good work here tonight. Good. All right. Hey, bye. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. Trojan 